0: Well, good morning. I can't, I can't express to you this morning how excited I am to be here, uh, how excited Mosaic is for me to be here, not just to give you a, a very short update as we begin, but also to express our deepest gratitude for your partnership with us in the gospel. It has been uh, beyond encouraging in what is a a hard, a tiring, a wearying work, planting a church in an urban inner city poor area. And um, so I I just want to express our deepest gratitude and thanks. Um, We, uh, as we've been praying through and thinking through how to Plant a cross-cultural church in an area um, that does have um, uh, different ethnicities and do so in a way that not just reaches all the ethnicities in our area, but also um, embraces and celebrates the cultural differences in our worship, planting a cross-cultural church, and one that also thinks about um, poverty in our area in a way that uh, just doesn't service the poor, but thinks through moving people from need to development in an under-resourced community. Uh, We became convinced over the summer that the best way to do that was to invest in the community, youth and children, and raise up a generation of leaders. Um, That would be leaders in the church as well as leaders in the community that loved the Lord Jesus and loved Jeanette. Um, And so we had about nine kids from the community starting to come to our groups. Uh, and we came across two needs. (laughs) We needed to have someone help guide us through working with urban inner city kids, um, but also um, traverse the the cultural differences in a way that uh, was sensitive and understood our own blindness uh, to some of these things, we also realized we needed a van uh, because we had a bunch of kids piling into people's cars, and we were taking them uh, to our meeting. And it just, um, we realized that that was probably not a good thing. So, we ended up getting a passenger van. The first week we did, um, we had 30 kids from the community come to our group. We had to we take the van two and a half times, and so we realized we had just bought the van and we needed a bus. <laughs> uh, but we're still doing that with the van. And um, and we also realized at that time uh, we. Started started reaching out to some different um, churches and um, also to the seminaries and asked if there was um, uh, some leadership that could be sent down to help us with the cultural differences. Most of our kids are inner city African American, and we wanted to show them not that we were just ministering to them because we felt bad for them in some way, but that we saw them as the next leaders of our community and the church and and so put some African-American leadership um, uh, helping us to do those couple of things. And um, you guys uh, and uh, Derek Bates graciously sent down Aria Kennedy Um, We've been talking with her. She's been coming down and helping us, and we realized that she, her vision, her heart um, uh, for what we're trying to do lined up so perfectly that we thought we needed to bring her on board. And so uh, we decided for her to be our first hire, to be a part-time youth intern to help us walk through some of those things. So we're so excited about that. Uh, We also have um, from Uh, RPTS to help us with that. Uh, Jonas coming down as well. And um, so we're very grateful for those couple of things. We had our Christmas store. Our Christmas store um, that uh, you guys also helped with is a way for us to help families in need to buy Christmas presents uh, that they normally couldn't afford. Um, But to try to maintain some dignity by allowing the parents to come in and shop for their children, pick out their own gifts, and um, buy them for a dollar. They get to pick out four gifts per child. Um, and uh, purchase them for a dollar, and um, we wrap the gifts for them there, and pray with them, and um, it's been very encouraging. Last week, we do it for two weeks. Last week, on Wednesday, we had um, 37 kids shopped for at the Christmas store. Um, we have 32 signed up for this coming week, so thank you for your help in that. It's been a it's been a great blessing. Now we uh, turn to God's Word. Um, if you have your Bible, or you want to look in your Bulletin there, we'll be looking at John 1, verses 1 through 18. John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. When my wife was pregnant with our firstborn child, we had a disagreement over what to name her. I wanted to name her Ariel, which in the biblical Hebrew means lion of God. My wife was concerned that she might be mistaken for the little mermaid, and so she was opposed to it. She wanted to name our daughter Leah, the biblical name for the first wife of Jacob in the book of Genesis. And of course, my wife prevailed and our daughter today is named Leah, which I absolutely love. But in the first year of Leah's life, she struggled with some significant health issues that caused her to cry a lot and sleep very little. We had to do things like proper upright in order to have her sleep and sometimes she would sleep as little as 20 minutes at a time and then wake up crying. Eventually, Amber and I decided we needed to split the night in order that each of us might get some sleep and maintain some semblance of sanity. Amber would go to bed around 8 p.m. and I would stay awake rocking and holding Leah uh, until about 3 a.m. Then I would wake her up, go to bed, and Amber would be up with Leah from then on. Needless to say, this was very wearying on us, and we were both exhausted much of the time. But out of curiosity during this time, I decided that I would look up the Hebrew meaning of the name Leah, and I was more than a bit surprised to discover that it means weary, (laughs) to which I promptly informed my wife that all of this was her fault. (laughs) To this very day, Leah still struggles with sleep, and I'm I've often thought of how fitting her name really is. Needless to say, I named our second child. (laughs) But what is in a name? I mean, are names really important? In the book of John, Jesus is given many names, significant names. And this morning we get to look at one of those names. In fact, maybe the preeminent one. So let's look at our passage together to see just what is in a name. The first thing we notice from this passage is that the Word is eternal and divine. Look with me again at verses 1 through 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Many have referred to this section of John as the prologue, and for good reason, What John says here is the foundation, the context for understanding everything that will come after in this book. But so much profound truth is packed into these few verses that you could spend an entire lifetime plumbing the depths of these truths and never exhaust them. Entire volumes could and have been written about the truths contained in this first section of John. It's not fair to try to do it justice in a 20-minute sermon. I'm not even going to try this morning. Instead, we'll touch on a few of the big themes and then focus in on one. But first, John says, the word was eternal and divine. There is a clear allusion here to Genesis 1.1, which starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Jewish audience would have been extremely familiar with this opening and expected God to follow in the beginning. But that's not what John says here. Instead, he says, in the beginning, the Word was. He was. John doesn't say he became, he was made, he developed, but instead that he was. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. There was never a time when he was not. You can go back a hundred million years, a hundred trillion, a hundred billion years, and he was there in all eternity past an eternal being. And John says he was with God, clearly a distinct uh, person from God the Father. And yet, as he will say next, one God with the Father. Very clearly, John here is teaching what we refer to in Orthodox Christianity as the Trinity, the triune nature of God. God is one in essence or substance, one God, and yet three in persons, eternally distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit. This means the word shares the attributes of God, his glory, his majesty, his bright holiness, his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth because he is God. I remember as a kid the tradition that my family had on Christmas Eve and what it eventually did to my understanding of Santa Claus. We would set out cookies and milk for Santa and a carrot for Rudolph on Christmas Eve, like other families did. And in the morning, there would only be crumbs and an empty glass of milk and a half-eaten carrot. But before bed on Christmas Eve, my dad would call my brother and I out into the living room, and he would have us sit down on the living room couch. And he would give us and allow us to open one present before Christmas Day, kind of a foretaste of what was to come. But as I grew, I came to realize something, that if my dad had access to Santa's presence before Santa came, then logically my dad must be Santa Claus. The only thing I couldn't figure out is where he was hiding all the gifts for all the other children in the world. But make no mistake about it, my dad and Santa, one and the same. John says here, the word and God, one in the same. The Word is eternally God. And so let's dispense with the silly notion, I think, that we sometimes carry around in our minds that somehow Jesus is this lesser, weaker, safer, softer version of God. He can be treated with less care by us because he is the gracious, kind, softer one. He is not the holy God of the Old Testament in our minds. But according to John, the Word and God, one and the same. And John says that the Word is creator. Look with me at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Apart from him, literally in the Greek, John says, Not one which was made was made. Not one. The Bible teaches that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them ex nihilo, or out of nothing. By the word of his power, God spoke and it was. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Genesis says that the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the deep and the darkness. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And by his word, he brings order out of the chaos, life out of nothing, shined his light into the darkness. The immense power of God displayed in creation in bringing everything that exists into being by simply speaking it into existence is simply staggering. It's mystifying. Mankind has created many amazing things, harnessed the power of the world to do incredible things, the advancement of technology and science and medicine, but not once have we created something from nothing. Our creativity is limited to studying, using, and reordering what is already here. We just can't speak and something new be. But God can, and he did. And John says here that that was Jesus. He again confirms the allusion to Genesis 1, but he says this was the word who created. When you read Genesis 1, the creation account, do you see Jesus there? John says you should. And he also says here that the word enlightens. Look with me again at verses 4 through 5 and then 9 through 13. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, more literally, apprehended or comprehended it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God, he says. When God made mankind, he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He made mankind in Adam and Eve in his very own image, And because of this, more than just having biological life, they were spiritual beings, having spiritual life. They were connected in relationship with the true and living God who is spirit. And they were placed in the garden where they walked with God in the cool of the day. And he set them there as our representatives in relationship with him. If they obeyed him, it meant life. If they rebelled, it meant death, separation from God for them and all who would come after. And when they fell at the temptation of the serpent, it plunged the world into darkness and misery. The judgment for their rebellion is pictured in the scriptures as the unraveling or the reversal of creation. From dust you were made, to dust you shall return. Death would replace life. Spiritual darkness in place of light. The umbilical cord was cut and we all come now born into the world separated from God, dead in our sins in spiritual darkness. And yet here, John says, in this one eternal divine creator, in him was life. And this life is the light of men. In other words, this life could be communicated. It could enlighten, shine into the darkness cause a rebirth, create children of God, born of God. It's one thing to have something within yourself. It's quite another to be able to communicate that to others. For example, have you ever known someone that's really passionate about something, but it simply annoys you to no end? When you're around them, that's all they talk about, and so when you see them coming, you kind of hide or you want to go the other way. But conversely, have you ever met somebody that's passionate about something and they're able to communicate that passion to you? You get all riled up over something that you didn't even care about before. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, and some of you probably haven't, it's an older movie now, uh, starred Mel Gibson. And in fact, if you haven't seen it, I would not encourage you to. It's very gory and graphic. But in it, there's this scene where the Scots are about to face the English on the battlefield. And they're outnumbered three to one, and so the Scots begin to waver and leave the battlefield. That is until William Wallace arrives, a face all painted blue, and his mere presence turns the tide. See, not only did he have courage within himself, he was brave-hearted, but he was able to communicate that courage to others. John says here the word had life, spiritual life within himself, and the ability to communicate it to others. He could regenerate or recreate, give new life, make new creations. Here, as in other places, God makes something clear. You and I were not just a little sick, a little fallen, a little bad, in need of a little help, but we were dead. We were darkness. And the giving of life and light is likened here unto the miracle and power of creation. And Jesus is the one with the ability to enlighten, not us. And John here gives this one the name Word. Look with me again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John here says a lot about this one that he is talking about in the opening section here. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't start this by saying, in the beginning was the eternal one, or in the beginning was the divine one, or in the beginning was the creator, or the life, or light, or gracious one, or truth, although all these things are true. Instead, he says, in the beginning was the Word. John named him the Word. And then he tells us all those things about him. But why? Why is this significant? What is in a name? How about some of these names? Andre the Giant. The King of Rock and Roll. The King of Pop. Right? Names describe something. Perhaps the most significant or notable thing about a person. And John gives here Jesus the name Word. And I think verse 18 describes why. Let me read it to you again. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When I met my wife, I was involved in a church plant in Cheswick. One of our members of this church plant, her name was Karen, was attending classes at the community college at CCAC, and she met a girl in class who identified as homosexual. She had been living with her girlfriend for a year, and Karen became friends with her, and in that friendship began talking to her about the gospel, about Christ, about the things that we've been looking at, and one night Jesus regenerated her shone his light into her heart, and she came to believe in his name, to become a child of God. And she decided to leave her old life, and she started coming to the church plant. And Karen decided that she was going to play matchmaker between me and her friend. And so one day after church, Karen came up to me, and she whispered, and I bet you can guess, go talk to her. Now, why would she say that? Why do people say that? Well, she wanted us to get to know one another. And to get to know someone, you have to talk to them, communicate, use words. You can know some things about somebody by looking at them, the way they dress, the style of their hair, maybe the expression on their face. But looks can also be deceiving. To really know somebody, who they are, what goes on in their mind, and their heart, you must speak with them. Jesus is the word of God. The one who makes the invisible God known. The communication of God, who he is. You want to know God, not just what he is like, but who he is? You must look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. You cannot know God apart from Jesus. God is unknowable apart from him. You can know some things maybe about him, but you cannot know him because Jesus is the word. That is his name. And John says here that that word became flesh. Look with me at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of those statements in the Bible that is so unexpected, so shocking, that we often gloss right over it, without grasping the full meaning and significance of what is being communicated here. I mean, the Jews had no something of the Old Testament scriptures where the word of the Lord would be personified. Uh, For instance, the prophets, when they received the word from the Lord, it was often stated this way in the Hebrew. The word of the Lord came saying, or speaking. The word was personified. But that this magnificent, eternal, one in the same with God, life-giving, powerful creator word took on human flesh, became a man, unimaginable. I mean, why? Why would he do that? You see, this is the turning point in this passage. It stands out. It's odd. It doesn't fit with the rest. And there is actually a clue in this passage to the depth of of its meaning, which is communicated in the Greek but is lost in translation. You see, what this passage says in the Greek is actually this. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? Well, if you know the Old Testament, on Mount Sinai, God commanded Moses to build this thing called a tabernacle. It was basically a portable tent Temple that would be the place of God's presence in their midst, traveling with them as they wandered in the wilderness. But why a tent? Well, if you know the story, the people of Israel were dwelling in tents, they were nomads in the wilderness. And God communicated through this a desire to both be with His people, but also to associate with them. They were in tents, He would dwell in a tent. And at the dedication of this tabernacle, we read in Exodus 40 this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place of God's presence and glory, and the place of worshiping God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, John says. Jesus is the place of God's presence and glory. He is the place where we worship God, God dwelling among his people, associating with them by becoming one of them, God and man. This is the wonder of the Christmas story. And when God became man, when the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, where did he go? It says in this passage, he came to his own, or literally, it was a way to state, he came home. Many of you will go home for Christmas this year to visit and spend time with family, and most of you will be warmly received. Even if there are some strained relationships, you will still most likely be received by your family, received home. When God became a man, he went home to the people that he had chosen to be his special people, who he had delivered over and over again throughout history, to the people that he had watched over and loved and dwelt among for centuries had spoken to by the prophets, had given their own land, his people, his home. God went home, and they did not receive him. But he came for one purpose, to suffer and to die for our sins, so that as the word made flesh, he might be the life and light of men, the place where those who did receive him might worship God, Meet with him, see his glory. By grace alone, through faith alone, be made children of God, born of God. This is why. Philippians 2 says this, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to tightly, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is why the word became flesh and came to us. And for us, as Paul begins that verse in Philippians, you too should have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. And so I call you this season to imitate the word of Christmas. Imitate the word of Christmas Yes, celebrate the Christmas story this season, but don't just stop there. God has chosen to reveal himself in the Word, to communicate relationship and life through Jesus. And Jesus revealed that God is love love that leaves the glories and majesty of heaven to take the place of a lowly, suffering servant in order to save. So, how should we respond? Are we willing to communicate who God is, to be lights that shine into the darkness? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Who is to reveal who God is today? Well, Jesus, of course. Jesus is the Word. But who does Jesus use? The church. You. Me. Us. How did the Word reveal who God is? Well, He became flesh. He came to us. Became one of us And lived among us. Let me ask you this morning what benefits do you have over others? Maybe it's an education. Maybe you came from a solid family with a good upbringing, had discipline and love. Perhaps you have wisdom or resources. Maybe you have a reputable family name. What did Jesus do with what set him apart? Eternal, divine, creator, life, light, truth, grace. He shrouded it, and he entered into the darkness to associate with us, to develop relationship. I encourage you this morning to do the same. Imitate the word of Christmas. Maybe this means doing something like learning Arabic and going to North Africa. Or maybe it means moving into an under-resourced community that struggles with the darkness of poverty and hopelessness. Or maybe it simply means entering into relationship with a neighbor who is different from us. But the goal should be to leave behind comfort, affluence, stability, other things in order to sacrifice and serve, to make known who God is, to have the mind of Christ. Something You must meditate on to figure out the application. At Ronald Reagan's funeral, the late George W.H. Bush, who just passed away, he spoke. And he told the story that days after being shot, weak from wounds, Reagan spilled water from a sink. And entering into the hospital room, aides saw the president on his hands and knees, wiping water from the floor. One of the aides said to him, Mr. President, we have people for that. Reagan was concerned about his um, nurse getting in trouble for there being water on the bathroom floor. Now, I'm not sure the view that these aides got of the president on his hands and knees on the bathroom floor in a hospital gown, but I'm sure it was as humiliating as it was humbling. But you see, the humiliation was not the point. The president humbled himself with a purpose, He was not thinking of himself or his position. He was thinking about the welfare of another, his nurse. Christ was not thinking of himself, his titles, his position, but you when the word became flesh. While Jesus was eternal God, creator, source, and giver of life, enlightener, and so much more, the fullest and final revelation of God, he became man to save you. Don't let the lure of the American dream blind you to the hope and call of the Christmas story. Imitate the word of Christmas. Pray for us as we seek to do this same thing in Jeanette by planting mosaic. Let's pray now that God would impress upon our hearts his call to imitate the word of Christmas.